Amen. We are continuing in the book of Luke and we're still in chapter one and we have been going through the angelic announcement to Zechariah. You guys are probably all really familiar with it by now. Zechariah is in the temple. He's offering incense. It's a very special occasion. And while he's there, an angel appears to him and says, hey, you're gonna have a son. And Zechariah's an old man and he's wanted to have a son for his whole life. And now he's getting the answer to prayer. So that's the, uh, that's the prophecy. We've talked about that, talked about John being full of the Holy Spirit, going out in the power of the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Uh, that's all being covered. Now we look at how Zechariah responds. So this is where the story gets a little bit interesting because we, we kind of have to ask the question, how is Zechariah gonna respond to the answer to his lifelong prayer? He's been praying for this his whole life. He's in the temple and an angel turns up. And how do you reckon he's gonna respond? Do you think he's gonna be joyful? Oh, jumping up and down, clapping in the air, praise God, hallelujah. Uh, do you think he's gonna fall on his knees? Oh, thank you, God. I've been praying for this my whole life. Or do you think Zechariah is gonna get inside his own head and start asking questions about whether or not this is even possible? Yeah, option C, that's right. Everyone knows it's the last one. And that's why I like Zechariah because Zechariah is basically me. That's what I'd do. Let's go, let's read Luke chapter one and this is verses 18 to 23. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. The people outside were waiting for Zechariah, wondering at his delay in the temple. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. He kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. That word mute you can also use the word dumb for it. We kind of use dumb as an insult, but dumb can mean unable to speak. And I wanted to call this message, and it may not be accurate, but I kind of wanted to call it the dumb cynic. You know, it kind of a double play on words. I think cynicism, skepticism is dumb. And I think it makes you dumb. So that's my little title. And we'll see if I can't explain it to you. And I want to say, I sympathise with Zechariah. <laughs> I feel like that would be me. There he is, poor Zechariah, and it's a once-in-a-lifetime encounter. I mean, no, not very many people get to see an angel. Not very many people in their old age get an angel turn up to them and say, hey, you're going to have a child, and that child's going to be one of the most important figures in all of human history. And this is incredible, and yet poor Zechariah gets in trouble. <laughs> he goes away, and he gets... Uh, sort of cursed, I suppose. He can't talk for nine whole months. That's a long time not to be able to talk. That would drive me insane. Um, it would drive my wife insane because I'd be trying to figure out how to talk the whole time. And I guess it brings a question of why, why does he get in trouble? Isn't the question a good question? How is this going to happen? Isn't that what Mary asks? Only like a few verses later, those of you who know your Bible know that Mary says, how will this be? We'll get to that in a moment. What, what is it that Zechariah did wrong in this encounter? I think there's 
three factors that kind of reveal Zechariah's heart and maybe explain his unbelief that I think we can also look at in our own hearts. Certainly myself. Maybe everyone here is not like this, but I am very much like Zechariah in many ways. And uh, if I can show you those three, I think you'll start to understand maybe why it is that this angel is not so impressed with Zechariah's question. So first, Zechariah, we've said this before, he is a godly man and a priest. And he's been a godly man and a priest for a long time. And that tells you something. He should know better. Zechariah has spent his life studying the Scriptures. He knows all about God, all about God's goodness, all about God's power. He knows that God can do anything, including give old people children, because his faith, the priest that he is a part of, the religion he's a part of, it starts off with Abraham, an old man, receiving a promised child in his old age. So Zechariah, he should know better. But instead of thinking about God and His uh, promises and His power, he immediately looks his face down and starts thinking about his limitations. In response to an angel coming, Gabriel says, sorry, Zechariah doesn't say, wow, I know God can do this. He says, I'm an old man. I can't do this. So Gabriel has spent his life He's a godly man, he's a good man, he knows the Lord, and yet he's missed something fundamental about who God really is. He's still stuck on himself. There's a little sign out there I was driving past this morning. It says, look up and live. I thought there's a great sermon title there somewhere. Look up and live. I think sometimes when you're encountering God, your temptation is to look down at yourself, not up at God. You know, Most of you here have been a Christian for a long time. You've got testimonies. You know what God's done for you. You've read the Scriptures. You know what God could do for you. But then you you come to a certain point, something happens or someone says something or there's something in the Bible that you open up or some other encounter occurs and it's like you throw away all of the experience and rest on your own knowledge instead. It's like, oh, I know God could do what He did back there, but I think this time around He couldn't do it. And the reason he couldn't do it is because I don't think he could do it. It's like instead of looking up at God's power, you look down at your own ability. And I've definitely done this a thousand times where I've gotten inside my own head, if you know what I mean. It's like there's something amazing going on out there, but where am I? I'm in here. Oh, is this possible? Can it happen? I don't know. What's the logistics? I think Zechariah makes a fatal mistake there because Zechariah is supposed to be aware of God's power. And I want to say to us, if you know who God is, if you know the Scriptures, we should have a default baseline that says God can do anything. And so if something occurs, someone comes, I don't know what the scenario might be, and I'm not really worried about specific scenarios. I just know you're going to have experiences in your life where you're challenged to either trust God or trust your own ability to understand. And just because you've been a Christian your whole life does not mean that you have more belief. Does not mean that you're going to just believe God. It might mean that you're actually worse at not trusting God and going back into your own head. Your knowledge and your experience will never cure unbelief because unbelief is rooted in pride, essentially. And we'll get to that in a moment. But that's the first thing. I think Zechariah should know better. And I don't think God is as sympathetic to Zechariah because he should know better. And Jesus himself says that to those who have been given much, much will be required. You know the Lord, he's going to expect you to have greater faith 
and the person who walks in off the street who knows nothing about God. So the second factor is, Zechariah completely ignores a powerful encounter with God. And this one cracks me up because this happens all the time with people. He's in the temple. He's in a sacred place of worship. And let's not miss this. An angel just appeared to him. That's incredible. That's an incredible experience of God. The angel says, at that point, for the record, if the angel said anything, Zechariah should be inclined to say, yeah, that sounds good. Let's go with that. It's a giant, great big angel right in front of you. And I think the angel thinks that too. Gabriel seems to believe that because Zechariah says, how am I supposed to believe this is going to happen? And the angel, and I don't think we read this properly. I was trying to think how I could read it, but I don't think I can do it. But I think he really is like, you know, I'm Gabriel, right? You know, I stand in the presence of God. You know, I came all this way to tell you this message. And it's supposed to be good news, man. It's supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be excited about this. Meanwhile, you're asking me stupid questions about how is it supposed to happen. Like the angel's kind of annoyed. You can see it. Who are, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And the thing about this is that your skepticism and unbelief will cause you to completely miss the miraculous. You will not. You, you, some people think if I saw an angel or if I saw a miracle or if I just saw this thing, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. You could be standing in front of Gabriel himself and he could say to you whatever it is that he's supposed to say to you and you could put your head down and go, well, I don't know, it doesn't really make sense to me. I'm not so sure about it. You could and I've seen people do it. We've all seen people do it. And it's a completely consistent biblical principle is that the hardness of people's hearts is never overcome by power encounters with God. That you, you, something else has to change. You know Jesus' story. He talks about the rich man who dies and there's a poor man in his gate, a beggar, who dies as well. Right? You guys are familiar with this story. I'm just going to trust you are. But he's this um, idea of the poor man is at Abraham's bosom, which is like you know a good place to be, and the rich man is suffering in the fire. And the poor man says, I mean the rich man says to Abraham, he says, at least send this guy back to my brothers so that they won't end up where I am. Because then if, if, that, if a guy rises from the dead, they'll believe. They'll, they'll believe. And Abraham says, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced if someone rises from the dead. And that right there, that line should terrify you. Because what it tells you is that belief is a heart issue. It's not an evidence issue. It's a heart issue. It's, you're not going to be convinced because an angel turns up. You're not going to be convinced because someone rises from the dead. It's possible that you could be like one of the Pharisees who was present when Lazarus rose from the dead and his conclusion was, this man's a fake, we should kill him. Everybody else was like, someone just rose from the dead and the, some people didn't see that. Some people didn't think that. Even it says when Jesus ascended into heaven, the disciples were there and it says all worshipped but some doubted. Some people, they saw Jesus floating up into the sky, angels appearing, but they still were like, I don't know. I'm just not sure. Because unbelief's a heart issue. Unbelief is a pride that basically says, I don't want to be fooled, so you've got to prove it to me. I was talking to a friend years ago, and there was something happening 
at another church that was kind of good. It seemed good to me. Um, and I went along, and to be clear, I went along to test it. I kind of wanted to see whether it was what they were making it out to be. Because, you know, you see social media ads or, or stuff, and it's like, oh, this is the next great thing. And you're like, is it though? Or is it just you're really good at marketing, right? So I went along to test. My friend didn't want to go. He goes, I don't think it's, I just don't know. I just don't think it's any good. And I said, he said, I, I, I've, I've been fooled too many times by these things. And I was like, you know, there's no reward in eternity for cynicism, right? You know, you're not going to get to heaven and God goes, well done, good and faithful servant. You never got fooled. You did it. You escaped every trick that there ever was. It's not going to happen. It might just happen that he says, you of little faith. Why didn't you believe that I could do stuff? Why were you so stuck in your own mind of what you thought was possible and what you thought was good that you weren't willing to go and see? Is this real? But there's a difference between going to see, is this real? And going to see, is it real? I want to see. There's a heart issue. And I've seen that. I've seen some people go and they want to believe that God can do all things. And so God starts doing something and they're open to it. There's other people who go and they don't want to believe that God can do anything. And so they want God to prove it to them. Come on, God, give me unavoidable evidence that this is from you. Then I'll believe. There's some people who are like that with Christianity. They say, I'm never going to believe in Jesus unless you can absolutely, without any shadow of a doubt, prove to me this is real. But there's nothing in the universe that works like that. There's not a single thing. Because your own heart, if you don't want to believe, will find reasons not to believe. Unbelief is a heart issue. You can say in the presence of an angel, I'm not going to believe this unless God proves it. And I don't want to be a person like that. And I don't want us to be a church like that. It brings us to our third factor. And this is the biggest error. And this is the one that you know, your commentators will typically say, this is the reason why God was angry at Zechariah or the angel was angry at Zechariah, is that Zechariah actually asks for a sign. You maybe miss that a little bit when we read it. But he says, how shall I know this? Which is, he doesn't say, how will this happen? He says, how will I know? So what are you going to do to prove to me that this is going to be real? Now, the problem with that is his heart attitude has revealed that he's essentially standing back in his heart saying, God, this angel wasn't enough. What are you going to do to show me this is possible? And God's not interested in that. God is not interested in people like that. They risk his anger because you have started to take a position that basically you're saying, I'm above God. You have to prove to me on my terms because see, Theoretically, again, Gabriel's like, hey, I'm an angel. I'm the top angel. That should be enough. Why do you need another sign? But instead, Gabriel's like, no, no, no. How am I supposed to know this is real? You do that. If you have that kind of approach, you're likely to get in trouble, just as Zechariah does. There's a parallel story, I think, from Matthew chapter 12. Um, I just think kind of links in with this quite well. It says, some of the scribes and Pharisees said, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. I like this because he says, You're adulterous and you're wicked. You don't want me. You don't want me on my terms. You want me to prove it. It's like if I said, Sarah, prove you love me. 
you wouldn't be impressed. You wouldn't be like, oh, that's a wonderful relationship. You would know that what I'm really exercising there is power in the relationship. I want her to prove on my terms. Oh, yeah, yeah, I'll know you love me when you do this, 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 this. And this, that's what the Pharisees say. Remember, the scribes and Pharisees have seen Jesus heal the sick, raise the dead, open the eyes of the blind, and preach in ways that nobody had ever preached before. And after that, they say, give us a sign. Because what they're saying is, we won't believe until you do it on our terms. And he says, listen, not going to do it. I will give you a sign. I'll give you a confusing sign that you don't understand. The prophet Jonah, he was three days and three nights in the fish and I'll be three days and three nights in the earth. Good luck with that. See you later, you know. <laughs> and God will probably do that to you too. You have this attitude that says, prove it to me on my terms. And God says, well, maybe I'll make you mute for nine months. Because the angel does give Zechariah a sign. He says, okay, here's your sign. You can't talk. How about that? Jesus says, Pharisees, here's your sign. Jonah, make, figure that one out. <laughs> they have no idea, of course. But then he says this, he says, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater then Solomon's here. What Jesus is kind of saying is the same thing Gabriel's saying. Gabriel's saying, hey, I'm the angel Gabriel. I'm something great. What more do you want? And Jesus is saying, if you had the right heart, Jonah could have come and you'd repent. Or uh, Solomon could have come and preached and you would listen. But here I am, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon. And because of the hardness of your hearts, you don't want to listen. And the picture I want you to have, this is the picture, and forgiveness, if you've got your arms crossed, it's okay. But there's a person, sorry, Ruth. There's a person that comes to church. Ruth is right in front of me with her arms crossed and she's gonna feel bad in about two seconds. There's a person who comes to church and they sit at the back with their arms crossed like this. And the whole time, you know full well that Solomon could be here, Elijah could be here. The greatest preacher of all time could be here. The presence of God could fall. Gabriel could come and appear and they wouldn't be moved because they've come to test it on their terms. I'll believe it when I know it's true. Yeah, don't be that person. I've seen him come and go. I've, I've been in meetings, not here. Other places where God has been manifestly moving. And I've looked across and seen somebody unmoved sitting there. Oh, well, I don't know about this. And I've been that person too. And every time the only way to get out of it is not by getting more evidence, it's by changing my heart. It's an internal issue. The problem with the Pharisees, the problem with Zechariah, the problem with me is pride. We don't want to be fooled. We don't want somebody else to have something we don't like stamp off. We kind of want to be the person who ticks it off and says, yep, this is real. Nope, that's not. We want to be able to understand things according to our own logic. And so the angel comes and says to Gabriel, look, you're going to give a child. And can you imagine Gabriel, I mean, sorry, I'm missing up names, but Gabriel comes to Zechariah and says, you're going to have a child. Imagine Zechariah. I think this is probably part of Zechariah's problem. He's thinking, I'm going to go outside. They're going to ask me what happened. And I'm going to say, well, an angel appeared to me. And they're going to say, what did he say? And I'm going to say, well, he told me that we're going to have a child and they're all going to laugh at me. 
because I'm an old man. But if the angel could give me a really clear sign, something like a tablet from heaven that says, Zechariah will have a child, (laughs) Yahweh or something like that, you know, you could go out and say, look guys, it's okay. I'm not gonna look silly because I've got the sign. You know now it's legitimate. And I know that's what I've been like. It's like, you know that God's moving or you sense God speaking to you, but you're like, I don't want other people to think I'm foolish. So I don't really wanna believe it until I can prove it. Once I can prove it, and then they'll never be able to laugh at me, then I'll be okay. It's never gonna happen. Gabriel gives him this sign. He says he's gonna go dumb. And this is where my little idea of the dumb cynic comes in. Because I think it's a fascinating choice. I think it's a purposeful choice. As a kid, I used to just think that was like the punishment for unbelief, just mute button, bink, you know, come back later. But I actually think it's a, a specific one. I think there's two sides to it. The first one is that when you're skeptical and cynical and full of unbelief, you kind of are silent. Like you're the person sitting there with your arms crossed in the middle of a worship time where there's something happening, but you miss it. And why? Because you're in your head. As soon as Zechariah got muted, he was stuck in his own head. He had to listen to his own thoughts. He couldn't get any of them out. Like I said, that would drive me insane. That'd just go insane. I'm a verbal processor. I think out loud. If I couldn't talk, I think you would see steam coming out of my eyes. As it goes round and round and round and round and round and round, stuck inside my own head. And that's what Zechariah is. Zechariah walks out of those doors. He's had this incredible encounter and he is reduced to being able to, what, what can I write? And we're not talking about iPhones and tablets and typewriters. We're talking about you have to carve it out on a stone tablet, which means, or, or a chalk tablet, which means not very much. I don't know about you, but if I had an encounter with God and I had to write it out on a chalk tablet, what you get is big angel can't speak. <laughs> That's all you can say. And so it's like the cynic, the skeptic goes away from the encounter with God and they're so stuck inside their own head, they can't actually enjoy it. They can't appreciate it because they, instead of having a like this kind of outward, yes, God can do it, they're thinking all the time, I don't know, 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 I don't know. And I don't know about you, but maybe you've been in a time where God's been present. Maybe you've been in prayer. Maybe someone's given you a word or a prophecy, or maybe you've just been at some event. And something's going on, but you're retreating into your little shell of your own thoughts. And maybe nobody in this room is like that. That's me, so I'm just talking to myself. I have done it heaps of times. And I've missed every minute that I was in my head, I missed what God was doing. And the only way out was to humble myself and say, look, I actually don't understand everything, but I trust that you can do this. I trust that God is able. Look, I'm not trying to make you gullible. Some people are silly. They don't test anything. G.K. Chesterton said, some people are so open-minded, their brains fall out. Right? Don't be that person. But other people are so full of doubt and unbelief. They so want to be in control and know without any doubts at all and never be embarrassed and never be fooled and never be tricked. But they never believe anything. An angel of God could appear and they wouldn't believe what he had to say. Zechariah is instantly trapped in his own mind. 
with his cynicisms. The interesting thing is that I also think that silence is the cure because God's gonna humble Zechariah. And that's what it's about, it's humility. Is Zechariah gonna become a guy who's humble, who actually trusts God properly? And sometimes God's gonna make you silent because you don't get the power of speech anymore. Because we know that you're silent in the meeting, but then everyone knows what a cynic does. They're in the meeting and they're silent. And they get in the car and they start driving home. They get on Twitter or Facebook. And then they start saying all these things about how terrible it was or how God wasn't moving or I don't believe it. Someone prove it to me. And God just says to Zechariah, just sit down, be quiet and watch as I get to work. So listen, God isn't going to change his plans because of your doubts or my doubts. He's not changing his plans. You can be sitting there saying, I don't know if this is God. He isn't bothered. He isn't bothered. His plans will go forth. You might miss out or you might not enjoy them, but they're not going to stop God's plans. We often think that God won't do anything until I tick it off and say it's right and good and it's possible and it's plausible. But that's not how God works. Very frustrating to me because sometimes God does stuff that I think he shouldn't have done. Doesn't make any sense. I don't think it's a good idea. Why are you doing that, God? And God's like, because I'm God and you're not. Why don't you sit down in the corner and watch as I get to work? I I imagine Zechariah, he's an elderly priest, a man of respect, a man of honour. You know what he has to do? He has to listen to his, his wife and her young cousin do all the talking about the miracle that God's doing. And you read the songs, we'll get to them. There's Mary singing the Magnificat, one of the greatest songs written in the Bible. Elizabeth has her song. And what does Zechariah get? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I know a lot of proud people, including myself, that that would be the worst experience for. God's teaching Zechariah that he doesn't need his logic, his mind to do what he wants to do. Final point. What is the proper response? I, wanna, I, wanna do, I do want to contrast Zechariah with Mary because she's going to come in a few verses. We'll meet her. And I think some people could get confused. But what, what's the difference between Zechariah's statement and Mary's statement? Because they do look very similar. But there's a really important difference because Zechariah says, how shall I know this? I am an old man. Mary says, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now, a lot of you might think, hey, they're the same statement. But Mary gets blessed and Zechariah gets muted. What's the difference? Well, Mary's actually asking a pretty good question. She's saying, how will this be? I'm a virgin. And, and listen, you're a young lady and you're a virgin and an angel appears to you and says, you're going to have a child. You have to ask the question, is he telling me to get pregnant? Is he saying that I have to change what I'm doing? Is he saying to get married tomorrow? Because maybe that's what I'm supposed to do. If you're humble and obedient, an angel comes to you and says, you're about to fall pregnant with a child. The logical, and I think a perfectly reasonable explanation is to say, well, God's telling me to marry Joseph tomorrow. Because that is what you would expect. So Mary's posture is one that's basically humble obedience. And also she doesn't say, how will I know? She says, how will this be? In other words, what are you going to do? And really, in my view, it's, is Joseph going to be the ingredient here? Is someone else meant to be the ingredient here? Or is it something miraculous? Good question. You should ask that. If God appears to you, young lady, and says, or old lady, or man, I don't know, you're going to be with child? (laughs) You should ask. 
What do you want me to do? <laughs> but Zechariah hasn't got that problem. He knows perfectly well how having children works and he has a completely legitimate method of doing it. So there's no question of obedience. There's no question in Zechariah's mind of, do you want me to do something here? Do you want me to change something here? And Zechariah's statement is very different to Mary's because Zechariah says, how will I know? Not how is it going to work, how am I going to be confident of it? That's what we've been talking about. And the simple answer to the question, how will I know, is you won't always know. And look, listen, I, I challenge you to try and be more neurotic than me and try and figure out the answers to everything because I want to know the answers to everything. You ask anyone who's close with me and I exhaust myself trying to know everything that is possible. People used to say you're a know-it-all when you're a kid and I heard that as a challenge. I was like, well, what if I did know everything? Then it wouldn't be an insult, right? <laughs> and I get myself into a sweat trying to figure out if how will I know this is real how will I know this is real and you can again ask my wife who now has to put up with this and I think regrets signing up for it sometimes because it doesn't matter what God does I'm like how will I know it's real and the truth is most of the time there comes a point where you just have to say I don't know but I trust God and you just got to say I'm not sure I don't know if this encounter is real. I don't know if this church is good. I don't know if that prophecy was legitimate. I don't know if God's really telling me to do this, but you know what I'm going to have is a posture that says, Lord, I want to obey you. Would you help me to understand how to obey you? Like with Mary, Mary asks, you know, how, what should I do? How is this going to happen? That's a good question. But God is not going to exhaustively explain to you on your terms, what it is that he's going to do. He's going to leave a whole host of openness so that you have to step out in faith and say, I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but I trust you and I'm willing to believe. And I don't think God's going to make you, you know, Jesus says this. He's not going to give you a snake if you ask for bread. He's not going to give you a scorpion. A lot of Christians walk around thinking if they don't fully understand what God's doing, it must be a trap. And it must be God, you know, Satan trying to destroy them. But I actually don't think that's true at all. I think you can have a heart posture that says, Lord, help me to understand what I can understand, but the stuff I can't, I'm still trusting you on. And those people, look, again, I think I'm in the same room as Solomon on this because Solomon writes Ecclesiastes and he says, there's no point being wise because the foolish and the wise alike both live and die and have the same, same amount of fun, basically. And I kind of feel that way too because here's me and I read everything and I try and understand everything and I go to the source material and I check it all. And there's a person next to me who's just like, come along, like, I trust God, amen. And we kind of get the same outcome most of the time. I think it's because one person believes God. And if you believe God and trust God, he'll lead you. And he wasn't ripping off Zechariah. He wasn't trying to trick Zechariah. Zechariah didn't need to have a sign. He got one anyway. I don't know why he wanted any more. He's not going to try and trick you. Look, I don't want people to be foolish. In our church, say we have a guest ministry come or something occurs. I'm just talking about a limited context. And let's say someone gives you a prophecy or let's say a miracle happens I don't want to be foolish. You can test things and you should test things. You can test them against the scripture. You can test them with leadership. We can talk about stuff. That's okay. 
I want us to examine stuff. I don't want us to be open-minded to our brains fall out. But, especially if it comes from people, like if a person comes to you and says, God told me this for you, you should test the living daylights out of that. You should really test it. But I want to be people of faith. I want to be a man of faith. I want to be quick to trust God. I want to have a heart that says, I believe. I want to be more Peter than Thomas. Peter's sitting on a boat. Jesus walks past. They do their first test, which is it's a ghost. That's their first logic. Jesus says, not a ghost. Okay. Peter jumps to the next one. He goes, if you're real, make me come out to you. Tell me to come on the water. Peter jumps out of a boat onto moving water in the middle of a storm. Now, it's a pretty stupid thing to do. You shouldn't do it. (laughs) Thomas, on the other hand, all of the disciples say, hey, we met Jesus. We saw him. He came back. He walked into the room. He appeared. The women say it. All these witnesses say, God did something incredible. Jesus rose from the dead. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe it until I can put my finger into the nail holes. Then I'll believe it. Thomas has the reputation of called the doubting Thomas. I don't want to be the doubting Thomas. Jesus does turn up to Thomas. Jesus is quite gracious to you. He'll often give you the sign that you are, well, not the sign you asked for, but he'll often give you a sign. He does appear to Thomas. But you know, if you read the scripture, that Thomas's response is essentially shame. He says, my Lord and my God. It's not a response of, oh, I found out, I figured it out. I don't even know if he gets to put the fingers in the nail holes. And Jesus says to him, go on, do it. Get your satisfaction. Thomas wanted his doubts answered beyond the possibility of unbelief. And so did Zechariah. And both of them kind of get a little bit of a negative mark to their name. Now, God's very gracious. He's gracious to the Zechariahs. He's very gracious to me. And I'm a Thomas and a Zechariah rolled up into one. But the point is, I don't want to stay there. I really don't want to be like that as a church. Unbelief. The idea that needs everything to meet your standards unless it's or it's not real, it will flow into every area of life. You'll be the person with your arms crossed. You might say, I'm only going to be my arms crossed when a miracle happens that I don't trust. Truth is, though, it flows into everything. It flows into your worship. It flows into how you read the Scripture. It flows into your own exercising of things like spiritual gifts. Because listen, if you're somebody, and I know this from experience, if you're somebody who needs everything to match perfect standards of understanding before you'll do it, you won't pray for people. Because you'll be like, I don't know what's happening here. I don't understand it. Did it work? Was it real? Instead of obeying God and saying, Lord, would you bless this person? Would you heal this person? Would you help this person? You sit there stuck in your own head, totally silent, not doing anything. You won't preach the gospel because instead of opening your mouth and just trusting that the Lord can take your simple words and make them work, you have to sit there and think and think and think and think until finally you're like, oh, if I say this exact sequence of words, then they'll get saved. And meanwhile, Bob from next door will have walked past and said, Jesus is God and the person's already baptised. And you're still stuck out thinking, is it right? It flows into everything. And it also flows into the character of a church because there are many churches who think they're being discerning. They think they're the kind of church that discerns, but really they're the kind of church that says to an angel, give me a sign. And I don't want to be that church. I want to be the kind of church that has a heart that's open to God, that believes God. I want to be a Mary church that says, how will this be? But how will this be? What do you want me to do? Is it real? Is it legitimate? 
the great verse, which we'll end on. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Your own understanding is going to let you down. Why don't you stand? Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to pray and I'll get done. We'll ask the Lord to give us faith and belief. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge our tendency to unbelief, um, our tendency to want to know everything, to want you to prove stuff to us. And I ask that you cleanse it out of us, Lord. You'd give us hearts, not, not foolish hearts, but hearts that are open and willing and trusting and knowing that you can do all things. Lord, we thank you. I thank you for all the good things you've done in the past and all the things you'll do in the future. Thank you for sending Jesus, your son, to save us. And Lord, in the end, we have to trust you on that one just as much as anything else. And so we thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us, for what you will do. And I ask that in our house, you would bring belief, you'd bring faith. The gift of faith would rest heavy in this room. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.